I have a bookmark on nothing to depend on. There. Okay, good. You saved the day. <laughs> I thought we talked about standing up straight. Yeah. And this kind of goes with the idea of every day a holiday. Every day is okay. And, and the goo goo that we read, you weren't part of that. Uh, Emily, <laughs> he had a thing. It's all, it's all good. I-A-G. He kept saying, it's all good. It's all good. So uh, now nothing to depend on. So we'll read in this order. Daniel, Emily, Kim. Okay. Trotty, uh cat is very sick and she wrote me that she's not coming. So no. that's the only one I heard from. No. <laughs> and Amanda, who is a holiday. Okay. Nothing to depend on. Sometimes people who do zazen say the whole world is shining. From, a, from an objective point of view, we don't understand how trees and birds can shine. But if you do zazen, maybe you will tell me what, tell me the world is shining. What do you mean? Why are the trees completely different than before? It is because you have to, you have touched the eternal heart of human existence, emptiness, which is called nothing to depend on. So what does it mean to say nothing to depend on? When you see the words, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, in the Heart Sutra, Mahapranya Paramita Hadaya Sutra, it's really strange, don't you think so? This is emptiness, nothing to depend on. It's a very strange idea for us to understand. But if you practice zazen with a sincere mind, exploring your life and others' lives, then someday, somewhere, you will touch nothing to depend on. At that time, you are scared. You know, a conventional idea of God would be the opposite, wouldn't it? In fact, there's one place in the Torah that I love where Moses has this, this big uh, log, and he's trying, it's the main thing for the, the uh, tabernacle. Tabernacle, is that what it is? Tabernacle? And he, there's no way he can lift it, and God says to him, you know, you do it and I'll help you. But that's like the, you know, the, something to depend upon. Oh. And our parents, certainly, you know, we have that idea we can depend upon them. And the United States government. And then, you know, and the president of the United States, we had this idea we could depend upon, right? No. You never had the idea? <laughs> no. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, in Eastern Europe, my parents were living all the time under the promise that the government will give them everything. As long as they will do whatever the government will tell what to do and they do, then they will provide 
everything. And the promise of communism? Yes, yes. And they got disappointed. Yeah. Did they believe it for a while? Oh, my father still believes that this is responsibility of the government and still hopes. I see. Even if the communism is not there anymore. So, yeah. You are scared because you see and touch the bottom of human existence, which is based on emptiness. But simultaneously, your human consciousness understands that that nothingness objectively. <laughs> the objective objectivity of your conscious mind sees your life as separate from that nothing, and it makes you scared. Make, maybe nothingness looks like an abyss or a black hole that will suck you in. You are in despair. You feel everything in vain. But in that moment, there is great opportunity because you are... A, oh, good. The lens here. Len, we're in a uh, we're st we just started a chapter. Nothing to depend upon. Thank you, Kim. Good afternoon. <laughs> and um, what he's talking about is that the first thing that happens is you're scared because you don't have this thing. You are in despair. You feel everything is in vain. But in that moment, there is great opportunity <coughs> because you are in the very insipid stage of tasting emptiness directly through your experience. So keep going. Got it. Milan, it's your turn. When you really get in touch with uh, nothing to depend on and become one with emptiness, a different new life comes up. It is a life that you have to that you have never expected. You are right on the flow of life energy. Just going on a nice walk, not expecting anything at all. If you see a tree, the energy of your life and the energy of the tree's life are moving along together in peace and harmony. Then you can take care of the tree as it really is because the tree is exactly the same as, you've, as your life. This way of taking care of life is called true practice. True practice is a pure sense of human action. It is activity that is undefiled. Undefiled, thank you, by the delusion of the separation. So what we can depend upon is that life will be as it is right? As mm -hmm. opposed to how we want it to be. It never fails, does it? Okay, uh, Daniel, I'm depending on you. Um, every day, all you have to do is stand up in emotions, open your heart, and accept the lively energy of your life when you are ready to act based on the wisdom then you are ready to act based on your wisdom 
you don't understand what emptiness is exactly, but your life is already there. So stand up straight and start to walk. Even if you are scared, just go ahead. Proceed with stability and let wisdom guide the way. Just go on with your life. Wow. That was a short one. Yeah, it was packed full of meat. So initially, there's this disappointment when you realize there's nothing to depend upon. But then there's something to me um, affirming or, or positive about it, too. Because I'm curious about the transition between the despair and the relaxation into it. Because it talks about you're in despair, you feel everything is in vain. So keep going. Uh, well, if you're living under a false promise that everything will take care of you, then uh, I think when you have a delusion, some part of you knows the truth. And so you're always like in, a little insecure. And you know what, what we really can depend on is, is life is going to be as it is. For example, I noticed when my, my grandkids were really young, Every time my daughter would call, they would either be sick or they would be healthy. And it would go back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. And so I got to depend on that. That sequence that if they were ill the last time, they'd be better and then they'd be sick and then they'd be better. They got every cold in the world, you know, mm -hmm. going to school. So... Is that what you're asking about? How do we depend on things? How do we, how are we happy? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the uh, journey between despair and um, be re relaxing into your understanding that uh, there is nothing to depend on. In a sense, in like a meta sense, that is something we can depend on. Like it's a, it's a, I think even for the, the existentialist, you know, that there isn't a particular meaning. There's not a, a, no one's taking care of you. And so it's affirming in a way, affirming. It's like dropping, of, dropping an artifice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit the concept of, I think maybe even from this book, from the previous chapters about uh, surrender, surrender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Surrender to the way things are. Yeah. And I think uh, Daniel talking about communism, you know, that's something that, that like his father depends upon the promise of communism and, uh, But then do you think he doubts it, some part of him? 
Um, no, he thinks that he <laughs> deserves this, so he's angry. Oh. So that creates anger. Oh. oh, so I see anger because he's not getting it. Yeah, that he thinks that he it, he deserves that was promised to him, so he didn't. Well, people, it. people here, be, you know, someone was just telling me there, you know, we have a birthright to have, for example, free medical care, for to have shelter, to have the. So if we don't get it, then that's a cause for anger. Yeah, it's a similar thing. Mm -hmm. Of a, you know any kind of welfare state. Yeah. Okay, Milan, do you want to say anything about it? Okay. Basking in Buddha's compassion. When you reach the bottom of your life and see the ultimate nature of being, you realize there is nothing there. Well, there is only one thing there, motion. That movement is the basic nature of being, the rhythm of life itself. The movement of nothingness gives you a certain kind of energy. It shoots up from the basic nature of being and you receive it as the energy of your own life. That is enlightenment, we say, but strictly speaking, it is Buddha's compassion. It is the great compassion you already possess. Buddha's compassion is very deep in your life. It is a form of your own life. Your body and mind are produced by compassion. Your life, the life of all beings, everything you see, everything and everything you hear are nothing but the total manifestation of Buddha's warm, compassionate heart. So whatever you may feel, whatever you may think, whatever you may do, Buddha's compassion is there. You could not see it, but your life, everyone's life, is constantly supported by Buddha's compassion. When you trust in Buddha's compassion, this is called faith. Buddhist, Buddhist faith. Buddhist faith is activity of con constantly seeking and basking in Buddha's compassion. For the English word faith, Buddhist, Buddhism uses the word bodhicitta. Bodhicitta. Faith as bodhicitta is not the usual idea of faith. Bodhicitta is a state of mind in which you realize that you are one being interdependent. Inter Interpenetrated. Thank you. Interpenetrated by all beings. So Buddhist faith is not only to believe in something, it is actually realize the vastness of Buddha's world. You depend on the vastness of the world that embraces and supports your life and you just bask in it. And Emily, that kind of uh, says a little more, doesn't it, about... Mm -hmm what yeah. you can depend upon. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're bad, Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the cheetah is like a big tree. In an earthquake, you can be saved by being under a tree with deep roots. 
This is, this is really true. The tree of bodhicitta is huge, vast. You, if you depend on that tree, you grow smoothly as a human being. It is, it is just like the relationship of mother and child, like a baby seeking and basking in mother's compassion, you grow as a child of Buddha. Is basking in Buddha's compassion the same as Christian faith that God loves you? Maybe so. I don't know. According to my opinion, I think so, but I don't really know. From a Buddhist point of view, God's love is the real reality that you're constantly basking in, the vastness of being. The vastness of being is hard to understand. That's why many religions say God is completely beyond verbal explanation, so we should just believe. <coughs> Christian people are usually very surprised that Buddhism explains the vastness of being. Of course, Buddhism accepts the aspect of being that is completely beyond human speculation. We trust in the vastness of being. On the other hand, we are human beings. We have a, <coughs> a big brain in our head, so we can't ignore the aspect of the human world that is created by emotional, spiritual, and psychological things. That's why in Buddhism, we study and try to understand the structure of human life. That is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the 12-fold chain of causation, causation, and in Mahayana Buddhism, it is a teaching of impermanence and conditioned origination. We try to understand human life, but at the same time, we trust in the great fact that everything is embraced by Buddha's wonderful compassion. So Buddhism understands it two ways. One way, is we just believe in the great reality and depend on the huge tree that is always supporting us. Whether we understand it or not, we are always basking in Buddha's compassion. But also we use our hands and try to understand it intellectually. For this, we have to think. So think, and after you think, as best as you can, move forward the core of your existence and bask in Buddha's compassion. The, the challenge here is to do the two simultaneously. It's not like two separate worlds. The, sometimes we call it small mind, big mind, or the relative and the absolute or other words for it. But both, both occurring simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And Kim, I have a question. How, how um, do you practice with a big mind? Well, I think you see glimpses of, of it, of things beyond you, of the unknown, of the, uh, you know, like Buddha's compassion. You see glimpses and then you become more and more convinced that it really exists. 
That's the best answer I can give, I think. Uh, because otherwise you wouldn't believe it at all. So... Uh, Would it be through meditation? Uh, I think that's one place and also just through your actual experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you stop trying to explain everything and trying to believe that there's a rational reason for everything. And, um, this idea of Buddhist compassion, you know, so you could think of it as a compassion of the world. Or the, and also the miracle and also gratitude. All those are big mind things to me. You know, the fact that we're here doing this is just um, unimaginable in certain ways, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I think I, I suggested or asked if this is possible to achieve enlightenment only through uh, intellectual exercises and intellectually. And, um, I think we, we concluded that you actually need to sit on it and you have to also, uh, you, you cannot do it only intellectually, that you actually have to uh, spiritually achieve this. I think so. Uh, so who's reading now? Am I? I think it's back to me. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, I'm confused with the word basking. Oh, what it means? Yes. Well, it, it, came, it comes from basking in the sun is kind of uh, sitting back and let it, I'll, I'll look, I'll get the de definition, but sitting back and letting everything come to you, lie exposed to warmth and light, typically from the sun for relaxation and pleasure. Uh, Luxuriating in something. But he went on basking in the glory of his first book. So that would be, he had written a book and it did well. And so you bask in it. So uh, to revel in or make the most of something, please. So, uh, Yes. Um, so sometimes it's positive, like here, basking in Buddhist compassion. But sometimes you could, like basking in your first book, you know, it, it can keep you, it can hold you back. Um, basking in Buddha, basking in Buddha's compassion, very naturally, spirit, spiritual awareness is there. When you experience spiritual awareness there is salvation. You are saved by your awareness and you find a wonderful life. If you see even a dim of image of the vastness of reality, you are saved because you realize that you can depend on that vastness. So that's exactly, Malen, you know, what I was talking about as a glimpse, the dim image of the vastness of reality. Can we read the paragraph again, please? Sure. 
Uh, Emily, you want to read it? Basking in Buddha's compassion, very naturally, spiritual awareness is there. When you experience spiritual awareness, there is salvation. You are saved by your awareness and you find a wonderful life. If you see even a dim image of the vastness of reality, you are saved because you realize that you can depend on that vastness. Based on living with awareness, someday something touches your heart. So that's another glimpse. And you jump in and experience that vastness directly. That is called enlightenment. Enlightenment penetrates your skin, muscle, bone, and marrow, becoming exactly one with your life. And you find that life is worth living. Based on knowing the core of your being, you live with confidence in your existence. Then enlightenment directs the activity of your life and you cannot help but share your life, living with all beings in peace and harmony, helping, serving, teaching and developing life in a human world. That is Buddhist altruism. These three, salvation, enlightenment, and altruism, are called bodhicitta, body-mind or way-mind. This is Buddhist faith. Uh, back to Daniel. Depending on love, many people think our belief I'm basking in Buddha's compassion only after I understand why I should believe. They want to understand intellectually before they have faith. But if you wait until you understand Buddhism completely, it will be too late. The span of your life is too long, not too long enough to completely understand Buddhism. I think Still. that's my answer to <laughs> what I... About the intellectual. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Were you going to say something, Emily? No, no, I was going to uh, keep reading, but yeah, okay. that's, that's a good point, Daniel. Um, still, studying is important. Studying encourages us. So one by one, study the Four Noble Truths, the 12 links of causation, Buddhist philosophy and psychology. But it doesn't really matter how much you understand intellectually, because right in the process of studying those teachings, there is a practical way to reach realization of Buddha's world. How? Take care of your life according to Amaru. Amaru is a Japanese word, term, meaning to express emotional dependence, such as between a mother and child, a wife and husband, or a student and teacher. It, it's an informal conversational term. The formal term is to love. Expressing emotional dependence doesn't mean having emotional dependency. <coughs> you express emotional dependence but you still take good care of your own life and keep it healthy. That's interesting. 
written in Japanese. The Amaru. Uh, well, Amaru is how uh, Emily is saying it. Amaru, thank you. Character consists of two parts. One part represents your mind in the vertical. The other is your mind in the horizontal. For example, if you, if you fall in love with someone, immediately your mind stands up straight and you forget yourself. There is no idea of something called I because your mind is completely occupied by love. That's pretty nice, but this kind of love is really based on selfish, selfishness. It's very greedy. We think romantic love is something wonderful. So we always expect to get something beautiful as a result of falling in love. But when you actually love someone, love becomes complicated. You are surprised and you don't know how to take care of the reality of love. Then your mind stumbles. It tumbles over and all of a sudden selfishness appears, spreading out in the horizontal. Finally, love turns into hatred. Always? Let's go on. Does it always turn into hatred? I don't know. I don't. Uh... But in the second part of the Amaru character, there is a term of negative above horizontal mind. Negation. Uh, thank you. Negation above horizontal mind. That means no mind. No mind means going beyond ideas of love and hatred and touching the original core of love. That is the beauty of love. Love based on no mind is to love not just a certain person. It is to love all things. That's beautiful. It's very important, but it's not so easy. The two aspects of love, selfish love and the beauty of love are always working together as one. And that's a good example of the small mind, big mind, or the absolute relative um, work, you know, being one. Show, some, sometimes showing selfish love, sometimes the beauty of love. That is real love. You can use selfish love, but love can't always be selfish because real love is based on both aspects. So forget selfish love sometimes and <coughs> practice love based on no mind. The practice of real love is to attach to neither selfish love nor the beauty of love. Hmm. That is how you can experience real love. So you could substitute love for, for anything here. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you fall in love with somebody what should you do express your love but don't be obsessed with love being obsessed makes you greedy that is selfishness i don't mean you should completely deny selfishness selfishness is important 
Without selfishness, you cannot love anybody. The question is, how much should you use selfishness? I don't know. There is no particular pattern. Look at your life, your circumstances, the situation around you, society, and the human history of habits and customs, rules and regulations. Maybe those things can give you a Sydney pattern how, for how much you should use your selfish love. Mm. Um, I don't know if I like selfish love as much as self-love. You know, it seems to have a bad connotation, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I understand how he's using it. Can you help us understand? Yeah, there's a there's a certain type of love that's um, as he said, it's it's greedy. It's not um, it's not in tune with the vastness of life. It's um, wanting, coveting something as your own, as permanent, and that's not what life is. Life is in permanence. That's good. It, you know, so it deals with attachment, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're grabbing it. There's a story of uh, maybe you guys have heard this. And they actually use this to catch monkeys. They put a banana in a pot and the monkey reaches in for the banana, but then he wants the banana or she wants the banana, but he can't let go. And so the, the monkey is caught. Yeah. That, that, that would be selfish where, you know, as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, am I reading? Yes. Uh, I think you read, didn't you, Emily? No, I did I read? Oh. Selfish love? Uh, I, I was reading, actually. Okay, yeah. Emily. Selfish love sometimes moves toward hatred, but real love is not love opposed to hatred. Real love is complete freedom. If so, then what does it mean to say you can realize Buddha's world by expressing emotional dependence? If you really share your life with someone, you will touch the core of love and discover the real meaning of love. You're exactly one with another person and there is warm communication. That's why expressing emotional dependence as Amaru is important. It seems that there would be a self-love that would be parallel to this, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. That that someone could be yourself, but mm-hmm. you could do it. You could do it um, in this kind of broad, vast way. Mm-hmm. The practice of Amaru is to trust in someone, whoever it is, and help that person as best you can. Usually we don't trust in others. Maybe you had a bitter life in the past caused by some person or people from a particular country or religion. So you don't trust certain people or teachings now. (coughs) But if you don't have trust in anything, your life is expressed in that manner. It influences all the beings around you. That's pretty hard. So how can we learn to trust in something? It's very simple. 
A baby basks in its mother compassion and grows very naturally. The same applies to all of, to all of us. You are a child of Buddha. If you want to grow physically, psychologically, or spiritually, you can bask in Buddha's compassion. That is to de depend on the huge tree of Buddha's world and trust in the beings around you, whoever they are. This practice is based on the truth that all beings are Buddha. It lets you share your life with others and help all beings with a true heart and sincerity. The more you practice like this, the more it is difficult to see yourself as separate from other people. Someday, right in the process of sharing your life, you will completely forget yourself and dump into Buddha's world of oneness. You are free. That is to realize bodhicitta. You just bask in the vastness of Buddha's compassion and appreciate your life. That sounds very nice. I think basking is a good word mm -hmm. because you're uh, relaxed. Um, you know, Daniel, were you there with with the koan on Wednesday night? Were, uh, with the busyness? Speaking? Yeah, yeah, you were there, and Emily was there. Malen, were you there Wednesday night? The one yeah. of yeah, she was there. Yeah. Okay. So so. In terms of the busyness, you can um, you know the opposite of being busy is basking, isn't it? Oh. If you had a continuum on one end you're basking and the other end you're you're busy. Yeah, and, you're like you're bathing, you're relaxing in something. Say it again. It, it's like you're bathing and relaxing in, in something. Yeah, on the one end, yeah, as opposed to being busy. Yeah. And he's saying bask in, in, in Buddhist compassion. Um, okay, who just read? That was me. Okay, Emily. Living as a Bodhisattva. In the beginning of the Diamond Sutra, Shakyamuni Buddha's disciple Subhuti is very uh, surprised by the wonderful experience of basking in Buddha's compassion. But Subhuti knows that he shouldn't be dumbfounded by knowing real reality and realizing that he is one being co-produced by the interpenetration of all beings. Once he has Buddhist faith, having faith is not good enough. He needs to know how to live in the human world based on faith. So after expressing admiration and appreciation to the Buddha for his great help and support, <coughs> Subhuti immediately asks him a question. How should the Bodhisattva stand who has set out in the vehicle of a bodhisattva. 
setting out in the Bodhisattva vehicle means Bodhicitta. How should the Bodhisattva stand who has set out in the vehicle of a Bodhi <laughs> of a Bodhisattva? Buddhist faith. Okay. Faith is realizing that you are alive in the universal path and your life is supported by all beings. So Sabuti is asking, now <laughs> that I have faith, how should I act? What attitude should I take mentally, physically, and psychologically? In other words, what should I do? And I was just watching a movie where of a about a friend, an old friend, and he was saying that uh, he was talking about Jack Nicholson, the actor, and saying that in a sense, he's not acting, he's just being who he is. And I don't even know if that's true, but, but in a way, that's all we can do is be who we are. So I don't know that, it, you know, how should I act? I don't know that we have a choice or that much of a choice. Like, what attitude should I take mentally, physically, psychologically? That's pretty well kind of comes with us, doesn't it? Yeah, one could argue that. Yeah, for sure. In other words, what should I do? Mm -hmm. So you're tweaking, certainly for the situation. But. Okay, go yeah, I, I didn't understand clearly how he distinguished um, the faith this in Buddhism and in Buddha from the, let's say, the Christian faith. I think what he, my impression was, and it's, it's real healthy that he did this, that he was like coming, admitting that he didn't understand, that he's not a Christian and he can't really speak about that. So to differentiate them wouldn't be very honest. Okay. You know, like, like I can't tell, I couldn't tell you the difference between living as a man and living as a woman because I've only had one experience. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So he's just being straight about it, that he doesn't know. Is that the impression you got, Emily, Milan? Yeah. Yeah, I was asking because yeah, I, I don't like the word faith. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah. because it's it really, it, it's, it tells you that you have to believe in something because somebody told you so without explanation. Well, well, um, Buddha's very clear about that. Do you guys know the, um, the sutra where he tells you don't believe in things because someone tells you so? Mm -hmm. Do you all know that sutra? I don't no. know. Let me let me just go to it, okay? Okay. That's that's really important here because the faith is very different than than uh, why, why isn't uh, here? Just a second. I um, as we've been reading this, um, I've been thinking a lot about a story that this um, uh, psychologist and philosopher Ram Dass talked about. He talked a story about um, 
trying to figure out, he was standing in a line of beggars in India and he was trying to figure out who should he give money to. And at some point he just gave up and he realized the point is not to give money to them, but to see them as they are. Um, and that story kind of reminds me of this uh, couple of paragraphs. Um, I am not sure that I think of the world currently myself in terms of like a great Buddhist compassion. I think of a world in, in all its greatness and, and terrible horror as one thing. Um, and I don't know how to stand in that. Um, and be comforted by that. I think that's what I'm struggling with, with this, um, with these passages. So, uh, kind of like, how, how can I love the world if there's, um, so much pain and so much suffering and so much cruelty is that kind of what you're asking mm. not that i could answer that but at all <laughs> yeah i guess like how do you bask in that uh it's a big question and i i you know I think there are people who can do it with, yeah. and not and not do it just with by hiding dishonestly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. okay. So this is called the, the Kalama Sutta. It's really, really beautiful and, and very important. Um, if I can share it. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. There's a thing new share. And here we go. The, oh, I'll make it bigger. Oops. You can see it now, can't you? Yes. Yeah. The people of Kalama asked the Buddha who to believe out of all the aesthetics sages, venerables, and holy ones who, like himself, passed through their town. So this was a time where there were many people each trying to get followers for what they believed. They complained that they were confused by many contradictions they discovered in what they heard. And most of these people would say, believe in me because I'm telling you so, hmm. which is basically the uh, I hope this isn't unfair, what the Christian church does. You know, <laughs> believe in me because I say I'm real, I'm true, or, you know, God says it. The Kalama Sutta is Buddha's reply. Do not believe anything on mere hearsay. 
do not believe in traditions merely because they are old and have been handed down for many generations and in many places. <laughs> do not believe anything on account of rumors or because people talk a great deal about it. Do not believe anything because you are shown the written testimony of some ancient sage. Do not believe in what you have fancied, thinking that because it is extraordinary, it must have been inspired by a God or other wonderful being. Do not believe anything merely because presumption is in its favor or because of the custom of many years inclines you to take it as true. Do not believe anything merely on the authority of your teachers and priests, but whatever after thorough investigation and reflection you find to agree with reason and experience as conducive to the good and benefit of one and all and of the world at large, accept only that as true and shape your life in accordance with it. So this to me is, is so revolutionary, isn't it? Yeah, in some, in some respects, yeah. Taoism would say that um, you can turn that on, it, on its head for, for evil, so beware. You mean because um, this could all be a deception? You could be deluded? The same yeah. text, said the Buddha, must be applied to his own teachings. Do not accept any doctrine from reverence but first try it as gold is tried in fire. Yeah, I mean, I like the sentiment, yeah, yeah. Oops. Uh, I'm interested in parallels uh, Christianity, or at least Catholicism, talks about faith in terms of um, the great mystery that um, God has a plan, and don't worry that you don't understand the plan. In the end, you you will on you will come to understand it. Um, and I'm interested that there are some parallels in this reading to that that um, your life is not long enough to fully understand. Oh, I don't think he was saying that. I think it was, you don't have enough time to understand it intellectually. Right, yeah. Um, you're going at it the wrong way. Now, I, I was, took a plane ride, I was on a plane and sitting next to a um, missionary. And I kept kind of questioning him and whatever I said, you know, like, why did God do that? He said, well, God works in mysterious ways. That was his answer yeah. to everything. God works in mysterious ways. I'll never forget that. Yeah. But it's kind of similar to you. Don't, your life is not long enough to understand. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's a big, a big question about, what is faith in Buddhism? Yeah. You know, especially in light of what I, we just read in that sutta that, um, you know, yes, you need faith and yes you, yes, you shouldn't believe things just because someone tells you. So 
So maybe you can develop this faith with experience. As opposed to just believing it because someone tells you it's true. So I had, uh, I taught with uh, my department. In fact, we, we were office mates, I think, at one time. Um, but close friends um, with a philosophy teacher who was a very devout Catholic. And every morning she would go and, and tend to the, the, the sick in the hospital, you know, and cheer them up. And then she'd come and teach philosophy. And I said, and she was a Catholic. And I said, Carol, if I could disprove God to you, would you still believe in him? And she said, absolutely. And I said, Carol, how come? And she said, my experience has been so real. I'll never forget that. My experience has been so real. So she's not, her faith is not just because someone said so. But yeah. she had. <laughs> I mean, that's true faith, right? I think so. Yeah. So I don't think there's a difference between that faith, her faith, and this faith. I mean, in my mind, I could, I could probably said to myself, um, well, you're just, you know, deluding yourself about his existence. You know, I, but, you know, how do I know? Like yeah. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's a book that I came across that calls uh, Cosmic Consciousness, uh, where the author is going through historical figures and proving, showing that they were, they had this uh, cosmic consciousness that they achieved, which uh, he, he, he mentions Buddha, Socrates, uh, Jesus, um, and he's concluding also that the way why Jesus thought that he saw God, that he's a child of a God, is because he did, this is based on his, um, the religion that he knew, that he was not exposed to Hinduism. So he was never even aware that um, feeling like I'm a God uh, means like the, the enlightenment that everybody feels like this. Um, so, so his faith in God was also based on that he was an enlightened person, but he couldn't understand the enlightenment in a way Buddhism understands, but he, he, he understood this in a framework of, um, of the religion that he knew. Yeah, he was just a man, so that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think that's a question I've heard. Like, if you were enlightened, would you know it? <laughs> I just want to see how much more we have in this thing because we have a bunch. Maybe we should stop here for our 10 minutes. What do you think? Yeah, as a four people team, we. Made okay. The progress. So, so, are we? Uh, we're we're right here, right? This is where we start next week. Yes.
I'll do it blue. Someone remember blue, blue. Okay. And I will uh, stop share. So we have a lot of stuff we could write about or think about. Should we do that for 10? Well, who wants to share? Are you going to make me share first? There you come. How can I believe all is good when so much is bad? Do I have blinders on my eyes? Do I not recognize my privilege? My friend tripped and now he can't walk. Is that good? He can talk on the phone, watch TV, eat hospital food. That is good. He said he was okay. That is good. People love him. That is good. He has faith that the world will go on. He has gratitude that all... He has gratitude that he's had such a good life. That is good. So what if right now he's bedridden? He's, <coughs> he's not mind-ridden. He's not alone. He's surrounded by love and care. That is good. I just talked with him on the phone right before our, our uh, right before this. It's very mindful. Did you, did, you, did you try to cheer him up? Uh, That's what I'm getting like, from, the, from the writing that you, you try to um, give him uh, some good, good vibes about small things. Uh, he was really there. I mean, he, one of the first things he said was that he was okay. You know, he, 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 uh, he has a walker and then he could barely get up, a, go when the, if the level changes at all, he can't lift himself up. And so then he tripped and broke his foot and had it operated on and he has diabetes and, you know, he, but he said, he said he was okay. Okay was kind of like good. Yeah. The way, the way he said it. He said, I'm, I'm really okay. Yeah. The TV was going and I said, oh, I hear something in the background. He said, yeah, the TV's going, but it's too complicated to turn it off. What was he doing? What was his profession? It sounds like oh, he he was a photographer. Okay. We, yeah, we we taught together, and then he he went and taught at another school. We lived very close to each other, and we spent a lot of time together over the years. So I've known him since the seventies. I guess about fifty years. Yeah. 
In fact, I hired him for his first job. And not his first job, but his, I hired him to teach. And then he went to another school. Which part of the reading inspired you to write this? Oh, about this faith that things are, are good. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I guess that's a different definition that of faith that we discussed it's, it's a faith like a hope really or like seeing things in a positive light it could be one way of getting at it Well, it's, it's, I think it's looking more at the big picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I found that very helpful. Thanks, Kim. So how's your mom, Alain? How's, how's her attitude? Her attitude? Yeah, her her mom has had a stroke, right? Mm -hmm. It's she has a great attitude. She smiles and that kind of things. Joke. She jokes. Jokes, yes. Oh, good. That's really really important. Yes. I was thinking, thinking in this question of Emily in regards of, um, oh no, Daniel, in regards of faith. And um, it's just uh, what I understood in, in the reading was that you kind of have to trust in practice, in the interconnectedness and the practice. But um, in these 10 minutes, I was also uh, rereading and thinking about that. And um, there's this, par this paragraph that says in the book, faith is realizing that you are alive in the universal path and your life is supported by all beings. And I also thought that Faith is related to, under, to the understanding that life is something precious. Because I think that maybe you can accept that you are um, in the universal path, but if you don't think in life as something precious, it will be complicated to practice the way that Buddhism teaches. So it's like an important foundation. I'm sorry. It's like an, an important foundation to to on which all things are based. That life is precious. And and it's not just human life, is it? Mm. But it's the life of all things. I mean, I think if you open your eyes, then everything is needs to be taken care of like even the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like appreciating the sidewalk that's holding, supporting you, appreciating the weather, appreciating the rain that is taking care of everything, of the trees that's giving you shade. I mean, it's just endless. Yes. You must deal with, uh, Emily, you must deal with parents who have, of kids who have lost their hair, who don't have hearing and are, are devastated. Yeah. Uh, I dealt with that today, yeah. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? How do you deal with that with them? You can't, you can't say to them, it's all good. Your kid can't hear. Yeah. <laughs> I try to reframe that this is, um, if we do these things, like give them hearing aids if they need them, then your child has a great chance of succeeding. And... Um, thriving. So these are the things that research tells us helps children succeed. So you give them hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I try not to spend a lot of time on, um, I, I allow them to, they rarely want to talk about how sad a hearing loss makes them but I do try and give them a little bit of time to express that if they want to. People in my experience have a hard time sitting in silence in sadness. And they, I, I kind of wonder if they think it's not safe to do that or important to do that. So what do they do rather than sitting in, in, in their grief? I think they do it by themselves. They don't do it with me. I see. Mm -hmm. Do they try to find a scapegoat? Um, yeah, I suppose like every, every parent is different. Yeah. I've seen that happen, yeah. I mean, even blaming the other person? in the relationship if the, yeah. if the re relationship is not great yeah people make jokes about that uh it's your fault <laughs> so. but you know about jokes right yeah that yeah they are, that they aren't really jokes yeah so taking i think accepting it as as uh the same way, you know, I just was looking at a neighbor's tree and it had died, you know, that, that all this happens. This is part of the life. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I think that's important. I don't know. I just have this um, instinct that it's important not to ignore the mud from which a lotus flowers. Um, it's important to 
look at it and regard it somehow and experience it just as it's important to experience the beauty of a lotus flowering. So I don't know. That might not be right, but. I have trouble. Um, well, I was at the hardware store. I guess it was the hardware store and there were beautiful orchids for sale. No, I was at uh, a central market and they had just beautiful orchids for sale. And I was wondering, um, so why are these things more beautiful than weeds? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've always had trouble with that. I mean, they were they were spectacular, and yet yet I was kind of <laughs> feeling sorry for the weeds, <laughs> all the weeds in the world. Yeah. Um, yes. Go on. Can I, do you mind if I share something? Sure. Um, I wrote about, I, I think I told you guys last week that, um, I was stuck in a, an air show a week or so ago and I lost my car and I was wandering miles of rows of cars and I couldn't find my car. There was a period of time in the hours that I was there that I was confronted with this flow of hundreds and hundreds of people flowing by me in this flat space. I could see like for a long distance, many, many people. And you, it was you, very- You had to wait, wait until everyone had left. Yeah, said. yeah. And it was super disturbing, like how many people were flowing by me. And I'm this week I'm thinking, I was kind of confronted by the limitation of my senses to give me a message of truth about the world. Like I, when I think about infinity, I, I look at blades of grass and I look at nature at the patterns of weaves. And I don't know why it's comforting. It's not scary, but to look at, hundreds of humans streaming by and to realize I don't have enough time in my life to learn about their memories and their stories of each individual person. I'm missing quite a bit. Um, just as I missed all of them entering the air show. Um, and suddenly I was confronted with the fact that I had, I am missing a lot in life. And that is very, um, That was very scary. So it was something I thought about this week. Are you in general a person that tries to learn about people you meet as much as you yeah, can? I think so, yeah. There was a it's such an interesting story, I think. There was a line from um, Portrait of a Lady by Henry James that I loved. Uh, she was one of those people for whom nothing was lost. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some people seem to be like that. Like everything that comes in front of them, they can experience. Yeah, but it's a, it's so hard. It was so hard to experience that enormous flow. And just allow it to sort of pass by. It's very young, it's a very singular, unique experience. Hmm. I was thinking the other day about um, the relevance of the experiences that we choose for our lives. And how often, well, at least in my case, I pass by on that. So I need to keep focusing on that. And sometimes I feel like you said, Emily, like I'm losing something or, you know, but remembering this maybe helps focusing on what should I be really doing Great question. Daniel, you want to say anything more? Nah, no, I didn't write anything interesting. That's for us to judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't write anything. <laughs> Did you think about anything? Um, well, I mean, it's a bit about this being um, like scared um, about that, that we are becoming scared uh, when we are getting to the bottom of human existence and like, which is based on emptiness. Um, and I actually... I mean, actually, I'm sure you guys know them. Um, you are familiar with the movie Matrix, and um, uh, I actually rewatched it recently, uh, especially after hearing that some people compared to ideas that you can see in Buddhism. And there is a one of the scene where uh, one of the character is actually choosing to stay in, in Matrix and uh, do not. Really, he wants to forget about the real world. Uh, he, he wants to enjoy not, kn not knowing this and live in the simulation. And, um, and recently as I had similar conversation with my brother when um, I mentioned that I'm reading about Buddhism and he really asked me good question, like, do you really want me to? also look into this or that will make me depressed and I don't know I don't know what to tell him because <laughs> um, maybe some ideas like can really make people feel uncomfortable if you do not 
study this for uh, long enough and you're not, you don't have some guidance, I guess. Because uh, I'm finding also um, sometimes some ideas, um, maybe not depressing, but um, confusing and um, making me scared. Yeah. Yeah, just like Emily, you mentioned the infinity, right? It's your, your, your brain is spinning, thinking, because we cannot imagine it. It's in the same way some ideas that we are reading about are scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I really like this book. Someone said they're not coming anymore because they don't like the book. Oh. Oh. I think he's really, uh, he's getting at things that are really, really hard to talk about. That's mm -hmm. what I appreciate about him. I think it's good stuff. Yeah, actually, reading this book inspired me to look more into other books. So. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I know, Kim, you, you mentioned that I should also look into more guided study with, with a teacher. Uh, so I know it's also on my bucket list. <laughs> oh, we'll do it. Don't, don't, don't uh, put it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I need okay. somebody to hold my hand. I'm scared. <laughs> Going deep into <laughs> or help you hold your whole own hand. All right. <laughs> okay. So I think our time's up. Thank you both. Both all three of you. Thank you all <laughs> three of you. Is there a word like both mm. for three people? Thank you. Anyway. Thank you.